in his word. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich. It is so powerful. It is true. It is a treasure. It is sweeter than honey. It is a delicacy to our souls. It is also written for our encouragement and our instruction. It is also the words of life. So we pray, Father, that as we look into this portion, a large portion of your word today, taken from the book of Acts, that we might, Lord, gain insight as to what your purposes are being accomplished here in looking over the large uh, amount of history and a large amount of biblical content of the plan of redemption. We pray, Father, that we might see clearly, it might help us uh, understand the wonders of what it means to be a witness to your grace, to your gospel, and to your Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now I'm going to try to start off with reminding us again the book of Acts and its structure. And I'm going to try to use a little um, motions with our hands to try to remind us of this. This is Acts 1.8. If you're not familiar with this verse, I hope you'll know it by the time we're done this series. But it starts off with, uh, you shall receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, which is the center where everything is happening right there in the temple, Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and the uttermost or remotest parts of the earth. Now I want you to do that with me, okay? We're going to start in all Jerusalem. That's a fist with your hand over the fist, okay? That's Jerusalem. That's the headquarters. That's the main Uh, uh, center where everyone's gathered. And then Judea is a small circle with your hands. There you go. Samaria with your arms. Excellent. And then your hands, like a big gigantic circle, remotest part of the earth. And that is the structure of the book of Acts. And we've looked at the first few chapters, chapter 1 and 2, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to be given. He talks about they will receive the Holy Spirit. That's the first two chapters, and then he was given. And then we looked at chapters 3 to chapter 6 until last week, the first seven chapters of chapter 6. And we noticed the church was a witness in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas of Judea. It was starting to spread beyond just the city of Jerusalem. And now that brings us, Luke is now taking us into a transitional part of the book here, beginning in chapter, uh, latter part chapter 6 and 7 on forward, up to chapter 12, and this is going to be a fascinating expansion of the witness of God's people, of the early Christians. He's going to talk about seeing the witness of the gospel go from not only Judea into Samaria, which is breaking forward into another area, and then he's going to take us into strategically laying the groundwork for this Instead of being a Jewish outreach, it's going to be now a Gentile and Jewish outreach around the world. Now, in order to help the church move in that direction, it took a lot to get them to go in those directions in some ways. It took the Holy Spirit to do it, uh, to cross over these formidable cultural and ethnic boundaries and barriers. The Holy Spirit is empowering, in these next several chapters, very significant individuals who, as witnesses, are going to bring the gospel with dramatic results. And so here we start off this morning in chapter 7 with Stephen. 
He is going to sow the gospel uh, seeds uh, into the life of someone who at that time was unconverted. And, you'll, and really, it's not fair. We sort of ended the scripture reading uh, a little early there. We should have gone on to chapter 8. Notice that Saul is right there. It, in, it mentioned in verse 58, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul's in hearty agreement with putting to death Stephen. And so uh, it talks about the fact that it's Saul who began ravaging the church. Chapter 3, what? Verse 3 of chapter 8. So Saul is there watching all of these things. And it's clear that the witness of the gospel is certainly going to impact his life in a short amount of time. Then we move to chapter 8, and you have Philip now taking the gospel to what? To Gaza and to Samaria. It's moved further now in this very dynamic, forward-moving, outward-going gospel uh, direction. And many are converted there. And then it's Jesus himself who is going to stop Saul, chapter 9, confronting Saul the Pharisee on the road to Damascus with the gospel, and his life is dramatically changed, and that's going to set forward the last big movement to take the gospel, what? To the uttermost or the remotest parts of the earth in the Gentile and uh, worldwide ministry of the gospel. Um, and then Peter also is going to take the gospel to the Cornelius, the Roman centurion, chapter 10. Again, moving it in the direction of people who were pagans, Roman soldiers, people who have nothing to do with the Jewish faith in their growing up years. So this is the expansion of the gospel. That's what we're trying to help you see as we make our way through this book. Now, in this section of the scriptures, this lengthy passage where it's devoted to Stephen, you remind, I'll remind you from what we noticed last week that Stephen was one of the seven men who was selected by the members of the church there in Jerusalem to be involved in the daily distribution of food to the neediest people among the members of that church. And one of the characteristics that was emphasized about Stephen, if you'll notice in chapter 6, verse 3, uh, 6, verse 5, chapter 7, verse 55, Stephen was not just a person who was a professing believer, someone who just said all the right words. But clearly Stephen was a person whose life had been shaped. His life is now under the control of the Holy Spirit. His life was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. His character had been shaped by the gospel. And we're going to see in this text, his words are shaped by the gospel. Even his death is radically shaped by the gospel. Recently, uh, my wife has been organizing photographs in her computer. She's found an app, an application that will take photographs. And once you identify that a particular person in that photograph, that face belongs to so-and-so, let's say me, uh, then you can scan and look through all your photographs in your collection, and it will identify all the photos that have that person's face in them. How many of you are familiar with that, right? Face recognition app kind of thing. What's amazing is that my son Eric resembles me, for better or for worse, resembles me so much that sometimes his picture will show up and it will identify my name with his face. Now that happens, and obviously the computers are not perfect. But I think what we see here is that we see sort of a spiritual application of that 
in this passage, it's clear that Luke is definitely trying to do that. He is trying to say, look at Stephen. He has Christ-likeness in a way that says, you can't escape the fact that this guy is a follower of Jesus Christ. His life has been shaped and molded now to become more and more like the character, like the life of his dear Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I want us to look at three things now about this idea of Christ-likeness in Stephen and his witness. Here's the three things. First one, point number one, we're going to notice that Stephen had a life characterized by wisdom. A life characterized by wisdom. Again, we talked about the church there in Jerusalem saw a need that was, need, that was not being met correctly. They, they recruited people like Stephen, who was displaying the outward evidence of grace in his life. Um, and he has a man of good reputation. His allegiance to Christ was evident. He was obviously a mature Christian. And isn't it interesting that people can see that on the outside if you're a mature Christian? It's not like you wear certain kind of clothes. It means you behave a certain way, you, you speak a certain way, you carry yourself a certain way, you make decisions. You're a person who is walking with Christ. And one of the ways that we saw that with Stephen was that he was willing to serve. A person who knows Christ is a person who says, I'm available. I'm willing to do whatever Christ asked me to do. And here he is helping the neediest members of the Jerusalem church, the poor widows who needed daily food. And Stephen's witness was a powerful witness. Not just because he was granted these unique powers, verse 8 of chapter 6. He was granted these unique powers, like the apostles, that he could perform miracles. And there were some signs they were clearly attesting miracles to show that he was indeed one of these Christians. He was working on behalf of Christ. But I'm convinced that even more powerful in his life was the evidence of the gospel in making him a person who is not following and pursuing the path of selfish ambition. Here is Stephen. He is walking what? The path of selfless service. He's saying, I'm willing to help those who are in need. It's not about me and becoming well-known and gaining my own reputation. No, I'm willing to help people who are the nobodies of society. And Stephen's witness as a person who was filled with the Spirit, bore the markings, the outward markings of someone who is God's craftsmanship, God's workmanship. Here's a person who was created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10, and here he does that. As you read the letter, sorry, as you read this latter portion of chapter 6, in Acts 6, it becomes clear that we see the wisdom of Stephen in his interaction with these members of the local synagogue. Despite the qualities of excellence and uprightness in Stephen's life, he has such strong opposition and antagonism to him. And so he's trying to respond to these critics and he does so with godly wisdom, godly insight. That what he's sharing here is not just something that came to him quickly, but because of his diligent study of the Word of God, it provided him understanding on how to apply the Word of God in this situation to everyday life. He's prepared to give an answer to people as they challenge him on some of the things about his faith. And so he, as a person, is gleaning from that, and he's now able to put that forward. And notice verse 10 
I love this. Luke is so great with these details he's included here. The insight that he's sharing from the word against those who opposed him baffled them. It says in verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Isn't that great? Here he is giving out clear biblical evidence in a way that is, they can't really keep up with that. And so instead of discussing the matters patiently and intelligently, what do they do? Well, this crowd reacted with very much a determination to what? Shut him down. We're going to thwart any more debate. We're going to stir up other people as an attempt to try to what? Oppose him with not just a few of us, but as many people as we can, gather them, get them all worked up. And they bring in these false witnesses, and they force these guys to bring false testimony against him. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? False testimony brought against Christ only a few months earlier. They arrest him. They bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is the like Supreme Court, the 70 uh, great elders of the, of the Jewish faith. And so here now, Stephen sets forth a thoughtful response to those who accuse him of what? Speaking blasphemy against Moses and speaking, speaking blasphemy against God and God's temple. That's verse 11. Now, as I've thought about this in terms of his wisdom, I think what's fascinating to, know, to watch here and know how he conducted himself, and I've been meditating on Romans 5 recently and I'm trying to memorize this passage of Scripture, and it says that we have peace with God by faith, and therefore there are many blessings that flow from that. That if our trust is in Christ, we have peace with God. That is, God is on our side. We are on God's side. And therefore, it enables us as believers to react to tribulations, not as the end of the world, but with joy, he says. Knowing that tribulations are bringing about perseverance. That's what we're going to see here. And perseverance is showing the proven character of Stephen. His real identity is being revealed in these moments of crisis when he's being treated so poorly. Notice that Stephen does not cave in to peer pressure. He doesn't cave in to intimidation. He doesn't return evil for evil. There's a sense of assurance and calmness, a sense of stability in his heart and life that is so remarkable here. And I believe it's this peace, rooted in his faith in God and God's promises and Christ, what he's done for him, has contributed to his ability to have a sense of calmness in the midst of this angry, angry crowd. And look what Luke says here at the last part in verse 15 of chapter 6. Fixing their gaze on Stephen, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Do you know there's only one other person in all of Scripture who is described as having a face like an angel. It happens to be Moses. The text is Exodus 34, verses 29 and following. He was up on Mount Sinai. He comes down with the two big tablets, and he has the face like an angel. I don't know if that means it was glowing. I don't know what that means. I have no idea. Uh, it doesn't mean he has a harp. It doesn't mean he has chubby cheeks. It's not that kind of an angel, okay? He's talking about he had a, a sense of which I think it's a serene look, 
But clearly what Luke is doing here is Luke is saying, you're accusing this man of despising and showing dishonor to Moses. He is resembling Moses as someone that godly, that reverent, that holy. All right, that's the end of that first section. Now we're going to come to point number two. How else do we see Christ's likeness in Stephen's witness? In his testifying to God's truth. We're going to get into a sermon here in chapter 7. Testifying to God's truth with confident faith. He says he was full of faith. Verse 5 of chapter 6 says, Stephen walked by faith. His confidence was rooted in the word of God. His faith did not develop out of thin air. Do you know that's true? Sometimes we wait and say, oh, I wish I had stronger faith. And so you're waiting for something to fall out of the sky and say, I just wish I had stronger faith. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing about the message of Christ. So it's in Scripture that we build our faith and faith becomes stronger. And so Stephen's response to all these opponents is what? Jam-packed. It is full of allusions to and quotations from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Bible he had of the day. That's all he had was the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. And notice that Stephen does not question the historicity of the scriptures. He's not filled with doubt saying, well, I'm not sure that the, you know, Abraham really lived. I'm not sure Abraham really was in Mesopotamia. No, he's absolutely confident of the historicity and accuracy of the Bible. He's not wavering in unbelief. He is strong in faith, and he is fully assured that what God has promised, he's also able to perform. That's what faith means. So when he responds to those who lied, make up all these charges, he draws from this extensive knowledge of the Word of God, as I said. And isn't it an interesting point for us that when we're seeking to be a witness of Christ in the gospel, it seems to me we'd be much more effective in that witness if we have a grasp of God's Word, that we can clearly explain it to people who need to have further understanding, people who need spiritual enlightenment. They're in the dark. And so part of our task is to prepare ourselves to say, let me explain this to you. This is what it says right here. Look at it yourself. And we're able to use the Word of God and explain it. That's what he's doing right here in this text. I find that significant because why? Because what's powerful in witness is not me having all these kinds of clever ways of presenting it, It's the Word of God that is powerful in changing people's lives. Look at this. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. I don't have the power to convert a soul, but the Word of God has the power to do it. It's the Word of God, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 15, that makes one wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's the Scriptures that do that, not me as an individual. And when engaged in spiritual battle, isn't it amazing that Stephen does what? He unsheaths, he removes from the cover the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He starts using the Scriptures, explaining the wonders of God's grace. Now, we're going to go into this. This is going to be the most uh, concise summary of a long passage of Scripture that I'm going to be able to put together here. So following with here as we work through this, 
What was his defense against the charge of blasphemy against Moses and against God and God's temple? Well, he's trying to help these folks understand. And by the way, he's talking to people who are made up of a Hellenistic synagogue, who likely in that area in Jerusalem. And by the way, Cilicia is the area where Paul, Saul was from. It's possible that Saul could have been a member of this particular group. It's unclear. We don't know that for sure. But anyway, those are the people opposing him. And what he's trying to help them understand is, listen here. He says, all that God set in motion in the Hebrew Scriptures was forward-looking. That's the old covenant. Christ has come, and now there's a new covenant. There are things that have changed. There's an old order that's passing away, and they're in this transition time. There's a new order of things that have changed because of Christ. As a matter of fact, the new covenant that was ratified by Christ, if you read the book of Ephesians, what are you going to find? Ephesians, which is, sorry, did I say Ephesians? I'm saying, I'm saying Hebrews in my brain. Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is writing to what? People with Jewish backgrounds who were tempted to go back into their Jewish understandings because of persecution. But what he's saying to them is what? There used to be endless, repeated sacrifices in the Old Covenant. Year after year, year after year, week after week, week after week, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And then he talks about Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. He says it was done, what? Once for all. There's a major change here going on. And God, he's saying, is indeed all of the sacrifices, all of the priesthood, all of the ceremonies were pointing to Christ, who is the fulfillment of them. And so he's going to try to help them understand there's been some major change going on here. You can't hold on to these old forms if you are rejecting what? Christ. Because Christ is what they were pointing to. So he backs up and he goes all the way back to Abraham. And in down through Israelite history, he's going to sort of go through them. Abraham, Moses, David, you know, all the great ones there. He's going to try to help them understand what? First of all, that God was not stuck in one location, one zip code. And that's the only place you can find God, because that's what this current society, current generation, were saying. God's right here in this temple, right here in Jerusalem. He's nowhere else. He's right here. And he's showing them in this text, you can look through it, Mesopotamia, God was there speaking to Abraham. He's in Egypt with Moses. He was at Mount Sinai. He's also in Jerusalem. Wherever God was became holy ground, right? Even in Sinai or the, at the burning bush. And God is not limited to a man-made temple. God is not contained to one area, one building, one place. Matter of fact, if you want to look at further verses on that, Isaiah 66 talks about that, and so does the dedication of the temple. Solomon even said such a thing. God, you cannot be contained into one little building built by men. So the temple in Jerusalem is really temporary. That's a radical thought for them. They're thinking this was the greatest, the ultimate, because it had been taken so many years to build it. Herod had been involved in all that. And they think this is the greatest thing. And what he's saying is that when Jesus ratified the new covenant on the cross, do you know that at that point, when we enter into a covenant relationship with Christ by faith, according to Scripture, the human body of a believer becomes what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in me. 
God dwells in you, the people of God. It is God who's building with spiritual bricks and spiritual stones a new temple. His people become the temple. You talk about shaking it up. That's not what they were expecting to hear at all. It was very much counter to what they believed. And so they think that the destruction of the temple would sound like that's the most worst blasphemous thing ever. And, and Stephen's like, no, it's not. This is part of God's plan. This is part of what God is doing. And the problem is he's running into ritualism among the part of his audience there. People who were relying on outward forms and ceremonies. As a matter of fact, it was the same kind of mentality that Jeremiah ran into. If you remember Jeremiah, who was uh, ministering at the time when there was, the southern kingdom was about ready to be destroyed, and everyone said, oh, come on, all you warnings about the destruction was going to come to Jerusalem, it's not going to happen. We got the temple. As long as the temple is here, eh, we're fine. And so Jeremiah was saying, your, your hope is in the wrong place. The building is not going to save you. Uh, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Your hope is in the wrong place. Instead of being in God and submitting to him and repenting of your sins, you're relying on the temple. And so here in this text, the opponents of Stephen are convinced that their relationship to God is based on external things. Their association with the temple would mean that, oh, we're good. We, we, God and me, we're good. I go to temple, temple's right here. Hey, we're good. The problem is, Listen, Stephen said, you're just like your ancestors. If you go back through biblical history, you'll notice that they rejected again and again the prophets that came. They mistreated all these different deliverers God sent. And Stephen, here he is, as a faithful witness, a bold witness, pointing out to the leaders of Israel, listen, you people have now rejected the one who is the ultimate prophet, the one who is the ultimate witness, Jesus Christ. You've now just rejected him. And now it's time for the gospel witness to be going further into the Gentiles. So Joseph was rejected and sold into slavery. Moses was repudiated, verse 39. It was the, God's deliverer, the children of Israel, turned away from Moses. They turned away from the law. They worshiped false gods, verses 42, 43 of chapter 7. The children of Israel persecuted the prophets who predicted the coming of the Messiah. All these things. And the audience to whom Jesus, sorry, Stephen was speaking there, they are following in the steps, doing the same thing, but they did it in the ultimate way because that generation put to death Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And they're walking the same path. They've murdered the righteous one. And in chapter 7, verse 51, with great boldness, and I would call it chutzpah, if that's the right word, I think it is, here is Stephen, he says, you folks are resisting the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by that? I think he means there's such a huge amount of spiritual truth in the scriptures that he is now placed before them. And they're saying, I don't buy it. Don't buy it. I reject it all. And you are giving false testimony. They are just saying he's the one to blame rather than this huge evidence given by the Spirit of God in the Word of God. And what are they doing? They are trying to silence the prophets. They distort the word of God. They reject the Messiah who was appointed in the Old Testament. All that is coming down. Now, what does this message have to do with us? 
Why did Luke include such a long message? It's the longest message in the book of Acts. Not that that's bad. But the message was essentially that all of us as people made the image of God in our fallenness, we tend to cherish the idols of our hearts. See, in the first century Judaism, their idols became what? Their land, their temple, their heritage, the law, whatever it was. The things that they said, well, these things are part of our identification, and therefore we're hanging on to them. And if you're going to suggest somehow that there's a change here, you're wrong. That would be devastating for us. That reminds me of a message I heard one time from the biblical counselor Brad Bigney, which I taught a class on his book called Gospel Treason. And he spoke about the fact anytime someone uses the word devastated, he says that's idol talk. You've now hit somebody's idol. When, when they lose something, when something is taken out of their life, when something doesn't happen the way they think it should, and they're devastated, what's he saying? What they really cherish, what they're hoping to make their life complete, what they're really finding to be the most of their um, uh, the thing that they trust their significance to be built around, when that's ripped out from them, that exposes your idol. So be careful when you use the word devastated. You might be revealing something about what's in your heart. Our idols are not usually those things that these people hang on to, but sometimes our idols are what? They are good things, perhaps, but they become ultimate things. So sometimes our idols, we would say, have become things like our status, our job title at work, having a comfortable life, uh, having a high performance in some area that we're trying to excel in, to be the best at whatever it is. Sometimes our children can become our idols. Uh, being respectable, being religious can become an idol in the eyes of other people. But all of us, like everyone in Stephen's audience, we all are people who are idolaters, who need a savior. We need somebody who can break that loyalty to that and help us understand there's someone far more greater as a treasure. It is Christ all of us are called by God to forsake our idols, to rely on Jesus alone to justify us, to make us what? Adequate. To make us so that we are finding full acceptance before God, not on the basis of all these things in our idolatry, but only in gaining significance through Christ and our relationship with him. And so we're called through this message of Stephen to, like those folks, repent and turn to Christ, trust him, and therefore see that in the gospel is our greatest hope for becoming the people God wants us to be. And that leads me now to my third point here, and that another third point about Christ's likeness in Stephen's witness. This is powerful. This is found at the end of chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. He's laying down his life with grace. Stephen lays down his life with grace. It says earlier in the text that Stephen was full of grace. And the more I see the way he died, I am so convinced that's so true here. Stephen wasn't allowed to finish his sermon. I want to say, by the way, thank you for letting me finish many of my sermons here week after week. He was instead interrupted by this angry audience. Look at verse 54. 
Here is Stephen speaking words of truth and life and grace. And what does he get in return? People who are gnashing their teeth. What does that mean? I don't think it means they have loose dentures. It means they're angry. They are ticked off. They are livid. And they're so mad, they do what? They put hands on their ears. They start screaming and raising their voice. Why? To drown him out. They don't want to hear another word of what he has to say. He has no microphone system. He can't speak over the crowd that's speaking louder than him. And so they carry him outside the city walls and they proceed to stone him. Thought number one. There is a price to pay when you speak the truth. There's a price to pay. And grace, being gracious to people and speaking the truth will often mean that you'll what? You sometimes are snagging their idols and you get a lot of anger put right back at you. Second thought, and just that one observation here, is that these people who are hating him so much, gnashing their teeth, they are determined to what? Silence him. Why? Because they are trying to silence their conscience, which is screaming out inside of them, saying that we're guilty. We're guilty. We've done wrong. Further on the text, against the background of this hatred, brutality, this religious violence, Again, Stephen is a man full of grace. Oh, what grace. How do you react when people are showing you a lot of anger? <laughs> oh boy, we need grace in those moments. And here in the midst of the worst form of rejection that one can face as a witness for Christ, as rock after rock inflicts unspeakable pain to Stephen. Here he is, at that moment, suffering, he is conscious of the favor that he was granted in the gospel. That's what's on his mind. You say, how do you know that? Because in that moment, his mind, verses 55 and 56, we read that, his, that in the moments before he dies, he sees a vision of what? Of Jesus in heaven. And he starts thinking about the wonders of the gospel. I have a Savior who gave himself for me. That is my hope. That's, my, that's the treasure of my heart. And so he sees Christ. Interestingly enough, Luke says that Christ is standing at the right hand of God. Now, if you do some comparison and you get your Bible out, you'll notice that the book of Hebrews says not once, twice, three times, four times says that Jesus was what? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And you say to yourself, well, Sitting down at the right hand of the Father meant what? He completed his work of atonement. That's what that meant, signified. So why is Jesus standing? Well, many commentaries have picked up on this, and they've said it's very likely that what the significance of that is that Jesus is now standing and extending his arms to welcome the first martyr of the church, Stephen. He's going to welcome him home. Here's the Savior extending his hands with the wounds of rejection and hatred with the wounds in his side and his feet, standing there to assure him that, Stephen, you're about to become what? More than a conqueror through me, your Savior, who loved you. Romans 8, 
If you don't see Romans 8 in this passage, you don't know Romans 8. <laughs> the latter part of that text talks about that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who trust in him, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, not tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, which means what? Cut your head off. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. John 10 talks about nobody can separate us from God because no one can snatch the people of God from the hand of the Father. There's a sense of what? Security and assurance here. Is that your confidence? If you knew you were about ready to die, is that the confidence you're awaiting? That's what the gospel of grace will do for you, my friend. It fills you with grace so that the grace of assurance is testifying that you are indeed awaiting the return, awaiting the welcome of Christ your Savior. That's your only hope. That's your treasure. That's the one who died for you. That's the one who lives for you. That's the one who will welcome you. That was his assurance. And then notice, secondly, that Stephen's heart, this is amazing. Nothing but the Spirit of God could do this. His heart is not filled with thoughts of revenge or bitterness or hatred. His heart was enveloped by what? Grace. The grace of his Savior. His heart is reflecting in wonder of what Jesus did for him on the cross. How Jesus laid down his life for sinners like Stephen. And what does he do next? If you look in the text, it says that Stephen, verse 59, Lord Jesus, he deliberately cries out using these significant words. He cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What's he doing there? Well, there's only one gospel of the four. There's only one gospel that records Jesus' words on the cross in which Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, which gospel writer do you think did that? Luke, the author here of Acts. Luke records that Jesus made those words. Now, here's Stephen repeating a very similar way of saying, I surrender myself into your hands at the end of my life. Moments before he died, as an overflow of God's grace, Stephen prayed for his what? He's praying for his enemies. He's praying for his executioners. He's praying for his persecutors, just like his gracious Savior and Lord had done. Look at verse 60. Falling on his knees, crying out with a loud voice, Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Isn't that what Jesus did? Lord, Father, do not hold this against them. You know, it's like he's praying. What does that mean? Does that mean they're all automatically going to be forgiven? No, he's praying that they will become a believer, they'll become Christians, and therefore be forgiven. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44? In the text in which he talked about being blessed. No, in the context of saying, uh, you've heard it said, you know, hate your enemies. Jesus says, no, instead, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That is the most unnatural thing in the world, right? It requires a grace, grace from God, grace through the gospel. 
And that's the grace we see lived out in this witness, Stephen. I read somewhere that the name Stephen literally means, in the Greek, crown. Or like uh, the winner's garland, you know, the little uh, crown that they would wear when they would win a contest. Here in Stephen's last words, his final witness, his final breath, it carried him over the finish line. And he was then crowned with glory as the first Christian martyr. With his life, Stephen's hands and heart had served the least of the people of that society. With his lips, he had proclaimed the truth of God from a heart of faith. And at the final moments of his life, Stephen, in his heart, was beating with the heart of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Here he is extending grace in the gospel to those who were executing, who were killing him by stoning. May the Lord help us to see that bearing witness to the gospel may be costly, but it is indeed a powerful way to show forth the greatness of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, what a contrast we see in this text of Scripture to what we read about in today's world where there are fanatics who are going around strapping bombs to their bodies and blowing up themselves and trying to kill as many people as they can for some reason or some attempt to try to attain a greater good in some spiritual twisted way. Lord, we see in this text the glories of the gospel lived out. We see the amazing fruit of the grace of Jesus Christ in a person's life in which a love that is indescribably amazing was demonstrated. But Lord, we know that's nothing but a very small reflection of the glories of your love shown on Calvary toward people who were your enemies, toward people who were despising you and rebelling against you and resisting you and doing everything we could to go our own way. So, Father, I pray that as we read this text and think about it and ponder these great words, we pray that you might draw us to Christ. May our love for Christ be deeper. May our boldness for Christ be stronger. May our service for Christ be ever more humble, no matter what the cost, because of the greatness of all that you have done for us and the grace we've received in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.